0: Good morning, family. Please turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And our text for this morning will be verses 1 down through verse 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Lord, we pray by your spirit as we study this letter again, as we study it in in its context with the pen of the apostle to this particular church that you would illumine us, that you would give us light, that you would give us understanding not only what it meant to them then, but also what it means to us now. And so we pray your blessings on our time as we hear your word. We say, Lord, speak for your servants here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this week we're moving out of the uh, two-chapter block that we've covered over the past several weeks, which is Paul's dealing with the Corinthians with the particular uh, financial issue of the contribution of the Jewish saints, the believers in Jerusalem. And we're moving back this week to the major theme of the letter, which is Paul's attempt to reconcile with the church at Corinth, where there's this rift and division that has taken place. There is this break in the relationship, as we've seen previously, which has come from two primary sources. One is a group of teachers that have come from the outside that have undermined Paul's influence and authority. And the other is a specific man within the congregation who's become a champion against Paul or had become a champion against Paul, even publicly standing against him the last time that Paul visited. And so those are the two primary sources that have caused the problem within the church that he is trying to. To address and reconcile. The last three chapters of the book are the final section of the letter where Paul defends his character, his call, and his interactions with the church at Corinth. And so as we move into this final section, there are two things I'd like to uh, just point out and highlight as kind of a preemptive preparation for this text. First, I believe we see here evidence contrary to the modern claims that are often made about Paul. Specifically, as Garland writes, not our Garland's, but the commentator Garland's. He writes, many today have an impression that Paul was pugnacious and uncompromising, hard to get along with, and always on the war path against this or that opponent. But we're going to see in this passage this morning that Paul is the opposite of this false caricature in how he pastors and handles the Corinthians. So that's the first thing. We see some things very contrary to modern claims made about Paul, about his pugnaciousness and not easy to be pleased, etc. But second, we need to see that Paul is not first and foremost concerned about his reputation. He is concerned not so much about his reputation as an individual, but rather his special place as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He isn't trying to just keep his job or defend his character for its own sake, but rather it is the apostolic gospel and Paul's apostolic authority that have been threatened. And if that's threatened and undermined, the church is going to have all the wheels come off at the same time. If Paul loses the Corinthians' hearts by allowing these false teachers with false motives with bad behavior to undermine the gospel as it's delivered by Jesus' uniquely chosen mouthpiece to the Gentiles, everything will be lost Today it would be the equivalent of rejecting the letters of Paul as an apostle in favor of the words of some kind of occultic teacher that that that's the equivalent somebody who says. Just put aside the letters of Paul. Don't worry about it. I've got some new letters. It's that threatening. That's what he's dealing with here. So the first thing I'd like us to look at this morning, verse 1, is what he begins with, which is what I'm calling a Christ-like appeal. He says in verse 1, I, Paul, myself. So he's speaking very personally here. Throughout the letter we've seen, he often says, we, this, we, that. But here he is specifically emphasizing himself. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. And you can put quotes against where you see those dashes. You can put like air quotes like this. I, whom humble when I'm face to face with you. You get the idea. We should note, however, in this verse and also in the next verse, two key words. And they are entreat and beg. He's going to entreat them. And beg them. Though Paul holds unique apostolic authority. He doesn't come in with guns a and looking for a showdown. He isn't throwing down the gauntlet and demanding their obedience. He is appealing to them in almost beggarly pitiful terms. He isn't showboating his authority, peacocking his place as a leader. Rather, he comes relationally with an appeal to them. And you see, this isn't just a mark of Paul's personality. It's just like, well, Paul was just that way. He was one of those ingratiating, amicable kind of guys. He's just, you know, it's not, it's not about his personality. He specifically says here something which is reflective This begging, this is entreating, that is Christ-like. He says it is reflective of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This, he says, is the disposition of the king of kings to beg and entreat. The Lord of lords makes appeal. The Lord of glory, the sovereign maker and ruler of the universe is, he says, the one who has meekness and gentleness. Jesus himself describes himself, Matthew 11, verse 29, that he is gentle and lowly of heart. Paul says, I'm coming to you reflective of how Christ is toward us and toward you. Brothers and sisters, friends, we have a magnificent Savior that despite his right to demand with threats every single thing that he commands. Who nonetheless shows patience and meekness as one who wants our best. Yes, there are times he makes demands, but it is in the spirit of one who wants a willing relationship, not servile submission. It is the image of his Savior that Paul reflects in this meek and humble appeal to the Corinthians. So he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am begging you, I am entreating you, I am pleading with you. But in the second half of verse 1, what I said, the air quotes go round. Paul is not making a statement about himself, but rather what has been said about him. It's, it's a paraphrase or maybe even a direct quotation of what some people have been saying. He's like, I, I'm appealing to you. I who am, quote unquote, humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. The accusation is essentially this. When Paul is with you, he is humble. He is lowly. He kind of walks with his head down a little bit and humble and gentle and everything. But when he writes his letters... And speaks through his messengers in his absence. Then he's a chess beater. He's bold and he's courageous. He won't do it in person. But when he writes and he sends his messengers. Man, he, he, it, you're going to get it then. That's the accusation. In other words, they're saying that he has two ways of speaking. And thus, he's really dealing dishonestly with you. He's all humble in your presence. But man, he is just demanding when he is away. Especially... When he writes the letters. What they're saying is he's really a coward. Paul is a coward who won't say do things interpersonally. And he gets his courage when he's not face to face with you. He only finds courage. When he doesn't have to deal with you personally. So that's the accusation. But I do want to point out one thing that is true. Because it's not totally false. When he says He who is humble when face to face with you, that is actually a true accusation. They would know that. The false part was the second half of the verse bold towards you when he's away because of a lack of real courage. What they're saying, and the general impression of Paul that they knew was true, was though it's being used against him, when he's present with you, he's weak, he's humble. He's appealing. He's not speaking like the alpha male coming into the room, garnering everybody's attention with a kind of confident authoritarianism of the false teachers. Those were the false teachers who were coming in, man. They knew how to shake up a room. Paul, when he came into the room, you barely noticed he walked in. The general impression of Paul is he who is humble when face-to-face with you, that it's actually true. He was humble when face-to-face with them. Not every Christian teacher or pastor can be accused of what Paul is accused of here. But despite this accusation, he addresses the fact that he plans to come to them again and that at that time things will be made clear, which moves us to verse 2, the upcoming meeting. He says, I beg of you that when I am present... I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. As a gentle yet faithful shepherd, he begs them that when he is present with them again, he won't have to change his typical mode of dealing with them. He can deal directly and more sharply if the occasion calls for it. If that's necessary, he's going to do it. But that isn't his default. He wants them to respond in such a way that when he comes, he won't have to deal with them as the church in the same way he's going to have to deal with the false teachers. Those who accuse him, he says, of walking according to the flesh. Now, one of the interesting and difficult things about this particular phrase, walking according to the, uh, or one of the difficult things about pinpointing the, the teachers, rather, I'm going to come to the flesh part in just a moment, but one of the difficult and interesting things Is trying to pinpoint like who exactly were these teachers? What were they saying? What were they doing? Why were they causing such problems? He doesn't name them by name. So we don't even know who they are. But he merely in this verse calls them certain ones. But what we do know from this letter particularly. Is three things about these certain ones. First, they are proud of their Jewish heritage. So they appear to be Jewish. That's in chapter 11 verse 22. They're Jews. They're Jewish Christians of some sort, and they're proud. We are of the people. Second, they are apparently skillful and trained formally in the rhetorical arts, arts of the ancient world, particularly the sophists. We read that in chapter 11, verse 6. So they are incredible, move it, uh, move, uh, persuasive, moving speakers. Therefore, we know from that they're very influenced by the surrounding Hellenistic culture. Third, they are boastful of their accomplishments, their visions, and their revelations. They are even claiming that Jesus speaks directly to them. Chapter 13, verse 3. So they're of Jewish heritage. They're incredibly gifted in speaking, very persuasive and boastful because they have a direct connection with God through visions, revelations, and Jesus himself is speaking to them them. And with these three components coming into the Corinthian church, the Corinthians had been so engulfed in the world, were new to the Christian faith. These things so impressed the Corinthians that they had been persuaded to align themselves against the apostle Paul on their behalf. That's what Paul is dealing with. So his appeal is that though he is going to deal with these troublemakers directly and firmly. He doesn't want to have to come and deal with the church with the same firmness and attitude. There's a lesson here, I think, for anyone who gains the ear of the Christian community. That there's a difference in Paul's example of how he treated the church and how he treated false teachers. To treat the church with the same attitude and snarkiness and hardness as the false teachers was not Paul's way. Now he will do so after a time of appeal and attempts to reconcile if they continue, but his default is not a kind of rhetorical talking head that he just comes after people and faithfulness means he's just blasting everybody away. I've become increasingly disconcerted with pastors and teachers that are constantly railing against the whole American church or the whole evangelical church, as if all churches and people are the same. Yes, we need voices speaking about the problems, issues, challenges, challenges, and tendencies that corrupt the church, but to say that the church is apostate or collectively unfaithful or the church is just run off the rails as a whole is way over the calling of any single individual. As messy as the churches were in the ancient world, and think about Paul and his churches, as messy as the churches were, what did he do? He didn't write one letter of rebuke to all of the churches. Even Jesus in Revelation deals with churches individually. He doesn't call them all out for the same thing. That's what it means to be interpersonal. The Paul, Paul the Apostle had the sensibility to not speak as if all churches were the same and lumped together and guilty of the same problems and positively... Uh, benefiting by the same uh, faithful attributes. So we have seen the gentle Paul reflective of the gentle Christ. But now we are going to transition in verse 3 to the warrior Paul to which some of us go, all right, now. (laughs) Start soft, go hard, man. Here we go. Verse 3 is what I'm calling walking and warring. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul engages in a bit of wordplay here, responding to the accusation that he and his companions walk according to the flesh. That's really what they're doing. They're lacking courage. They're 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 cowards. Yes, writes Paul, we do walk according to the flesh in verse three. But Paul doesn't mean flesh in the way that the Christian theology and he sometimes use this term. Flesh is often used as like sinfulness, worldly. The Greek word sarx, to walk according to the flesh, to struggle with the flesh. Here he's using walking according to the flesh simply to mean walking as as life in this world, just living life in this body, in this world. So, yes, we do live in this world and walk according to the flesh. But, and now here's the wordplay, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He clarifies that they are not waging war according to the flesh. This is equivalent to a statement in Ephesians that we do not war against flesh and blood. But don't don't miss the point that there is war. He is in a war. We are in a war. But it isn't the kind of war that takes up physical swords, daggers, shields, bows, and hammers. It isn't the kind of war that splits skulls, disembowels, and severs limbs. War is being waged, but not that kind of war. In verse 4, he mentions the weapons of our warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons in this war are those with divine power, he says. He is probably referring or referencing here what he describes more fully in Ephesians 6. And those weapons you may remember include righteousness, and he uses, you know, the, the clothing terms, the, the warfare terms. And I'm just giving what he says those are related to. But righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God and spirit empowered prayer. All of which he describes in the terms of this military gear. He says that's that's the weapons of our warfare. Righteousness, right living, doing the right thing, equity, justice. Faith, believing in the promises of God, spreading the gospel of peace that God is reconciled with man through Christ. Salvation, rescue from sin and the fallenness of the world. The word of God, the scriptures and spirit and power prayer. He says these are the weapons that we're we're fighting with. Not hammers and swords, etc. Now his reference in this verse to strongholds are spiritual strongholds that include the desires, the affections, and thinking. What someone believes, what they think, what they, what they hope in. They're the matters of the, the strongholds of the soul. These are the primary places through which the kingdom of darkness works in the hearts of people. He makes clear that taking up physical weapons and worldly means is not the way to destroy these strongholds. A change of mind at the point of the sword is never a spiritual victory. But the weapons of this warfare, he says, are powerful and have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse five and six. Now he describes in very vibrant, lively terms the battle ensued. With these weapons that are of divine power that I've just mentioned, verse five and six, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish, punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, this is one of those texts that is often plucked out of this particular letter to you know, justify apologetics or something like that. But you see, in the context, it has to do with problems in the church, things that have come against him, etc. Not that it can't be used for apologetics, but in the context, Paul is not arguing for po- apologetics in an apologetic rationalistic approach to, you know, dealing with atheists, things like that. He's dealing with the problems of the church. So Paul, in vivid and imaginative language, describes the taking of a walled city in the ancient world. It was useless for an army to attack a walled city with just regular hand weapons, like swords. I mean, you go up with the sword, and ting, 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 there's this big wall. They're all there. Some of y'all know the reference, but it, 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 you know, you do that. I got this hammer hammering on the wall, it's several feet thick and you can't, can't it, it was just useless. What they would have to do to a walled city is to use, use, siege mounds. They would pile up the dirt. They would move in massive tons of dirt and then they would build siege engines, which were these towers that you could climb up, sheltered, get up to the top and hopefully get up far enough that you could get up over the wall and start sending your troops in through, through, through the siege tower. Or you could have battering rams. You had all of this. this. This is the imagery he's using here. Those of you who like Lord of the Rings know this at Minas Tirith and what happens there with the wolf battering ram. So this invading army would have to overcome those walls that are manned at the top breaking the resistance through. They would have to get in somehow. It was only then that they could enter the city and take its people captive. And it is this well-known and terrifying practice that Paul uses to describe this is how it is. It's like a walled city and we're using these divine powerful weapons of righteousness and the gospel of peace and, and, and prayer and the word of God to attack wall, uh, walled cities and to Tyler's point from the Sunday school, the gates of hell will not prevail against it means we're the ones attacking. We're the ones attacking. That's the imagery he's using here. And it's the imagery he's using here with these leaders at the church at the top of the wall leading these cities and the city. and, And they have taken captive the Corinthians in their thinking and making them oppose Paul. That's, that's the whole image that he's using here. And he says we're coming. And we're going to overthrow these false teachers. The question is. What will be the heart of the citizens when we break through the wall? Are you going to be resisting us still? Or are you going to be glad to be rescued from captivity. From these false teachers. That's the image he's using here. So in this image Paul is pointing out. That there would be certain people Sure to be punished, including these leaders, those who had been manning the wall, so to speak, those leading the resistance. However, at least in the case of merciful conquerors, it was understood that every man, woman, and child was not held responsible for everything that was done in that city. So, in the case of merciful conquerors, safety, a quarter, could be shown and offered to the citizens if they would. In a sense, if they had been taken captive or it was beyond their choice, they didn't want to enter into this war. But if they were willing to submit to the victor, then they would be shown mercy by their submission and their willingness to live at peace with the victor. And that's the image he's using here. We're coming back. What is going to be your attitude when we have returned, church? So this is Paul's vision of coming to Corinth. These false teachers were the leaders who by their persuasive speech, their claim to miracles, their posturing themselves above Paul and the other other apostles, have taken captive for a while the Corinthian church. When Paul returns to overthrow and punish the usurping leaders, he hoped the Corinthians would be cheerful and cheering for their rescue, even if they had previously been taken captive willingly. Now the question that could be raised here. Is how does Paul intend to punish these leaders? Like, is he going to come in with fireballs shooting out his eyes and you know miracles and them dropping dead? Like, exactly how is he going to punish them? Is he going to have a boxing match? I mean, what what is he going to do if they just stand there and go, no? I mean, what's he going to do? Well, my best guess is what he's going to do. He says, "We're going to be ready to punish every disobedience." There in verse six when your obedience is complete, that's key. We're going to be ready to punish every disobedience that we find when we come back to this walled city, so to speak. He intends to punish these leaders, and my best guess is, by the eviction of their presence from the church. By the church's eviction of them and of their influence by the Corinthians themselves. In other words, the Corinthians are going to throw these guys up out over the wall. Like here they are. Do with them what you wish. They're going to lose influence. They're going to lose the ability to continue to carry the the, the impressions of, of the Corinthians. Punishing the disobedience of the false apostles would only happen as a result of the obedience of the Corinthians to Jesus's true apostle. It needed to be an inside job. Or Paul's plan wouldn't work. The church would be lost. Which brings us then to our application of this text. First of all, we see in this text, Paul is a gentle warrior. Jesus as the gentle and meek Jesus. First of all, I want to point in, in regards to his reflection and interaction, his reflection of Christ in his interact with, interaction with the church, In Paul's pastoral and interpersonal care, we see a great reflection of the heart of Jesus and how he treats me and you. We see that his default isn't readiness to discipline at at the drop of a hat. Standing around with belt in hand, with paddle in hand, just waiting for us to mess up. Instead of being harsh, hard, or demanding, even when we sin and go astray, he is the shepherd who is gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, there come times when we need firmer discipline, rebuke, and correction, but this isn't God's default disposition toward you or toward me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. So we see Jesus' heart. So at the heart of all of this, why is Paul treating the church this way? Who have been overtaken by false leaders? Now again, Paul easily could have written off the church already. Well, if you've got a church that you know has a problem with all these different things, they're not even a true church one of One of my favorite uh, when I've gone to Zambia to teach pastors there, one of my favorite um, when we start talking about churches and what is a faithful biblical church, and so on I'll, I'll, I'll say I want something like this imagine a church down your street, maybe there's one like this, down the street there in uh in Cobwe or somewhere. There's a church down the street, and uh, well, first of all, they don't, they don't have any valid church leaders that are resident there with them, so they don't have any pastors, and uh, they're caught up in the charismatic gifts, and everybody's breaking out in tongues, and, and about half of them are getting drunk every Sunday, and uh, oh yeah, and there's this guy who's still in the church who, you know, is sleeping with his father's wife, and uh, uh, some of them are divorcing unbiblically because they've got an over-spiritualized view of 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 the coming kingdom and on and on and on. And I said, now, what would you say about this church? And all these pastors are like, oh, that's not a church. That's not even a true church. There's no Christians there. There's no way that can happen. I said, let me tell you what Paul says about that kind of church. And I read to them the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we see God's tolerance and Jesus's tolerance. And Paul's tolerance for problems in the church is much higher than some of the idealists that we'll find on YouTube or on websites who are constantly going around declaring themselves to be the great watchdog of the Christian faith. Telling you what church is true and which church is not true. I think that's way above the pay grade of most internet influencers. Influencers. Paul himself is appealing to the church, dealing with them, loving with them, the gentleness and lowliness of Christ, he says. Yes, there is warfare and yes, there may become a time where the lampstand is removed from a church, as we read in the opening chapters of Revelation. But what's interesting is those seven churches, even the ones that Jesus has uh, said he is going to remove the lampstand if they don't repent, it's it's a warning, and he still calls them the church. So Jesus' heart toward us, which brings secondly to the application how I believe Paul is a model for Christian leaders. I know few men, including myself, who have the grace to deal with such ornery, uh, or, ornery, or, 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 ornery, ornery. You know what I mean. Like cantankerous problems as Paul... Dealing with at the, at the church of Corinth. I, I don't know many men that could put up with what he put up. And not just lose their minds. We are often more inclined to respond in ways that fail to measure up to our great shepherd's example. So for this reason, please pray for your leaders and the leaders of other churches. As we face challenges, that we would have the gentleness The earnestness, the eagerness to be reconciled and see the church flourish. Which also then brings us to Paul as a model for us as Christians in the uh, current cultural climate. We also have lessons to learn from Paul as he imitates Christ regarding the overall atmosphere of our culture. I mentioned earlier Christian teachers, and I want to include both pastors of local churches as well as what I would say are self-designated Christian influencers of various sorts. The ability of of self-designating oneself as a watchdog to gain the ear of people that they have no personal relationship with through social media is unprecedented Unprecedented. In human history, the ability for someone who just says, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to do this. or I'm going to speak out against the church or about the church to get a YouTube channel and get thousands and even millions. Of, it's unprecedented in human history. And many of these so-called influencers feel it's their call to make broad brush statements about what is wrong in the church. And somehow they have been given the discernment to declare the church is apostate or all wrong or completely whatever. And while there is certainly much that needs correction in the church and in me. I believe we too often see an overall tone of anger and alarm. But the promise still stands. Christ is building his church. Christ is still Lord of his church. There were problems in the early church. There were problems in the apostolic church. There were problems in the medieval church. There were problems with the reformed period of the church. In the pre-modern and post-modern, there have always been problems in the church because we are sinners in the church. And to have an alarmist tone or a tone of anger constantly to be corrosively frustrated with how bad the church is we we see Paul deals with problems but he's just not always irritated always angry always frustrated always alarming instead we see his heart with meekness and gentleness entreating and appealing to the church for their good and then their flourishing to be reconciled with Christ I suggest we need to push hard against celebrity Christian culture, both reformed and non-reformed. I heard heard a reformed leader, pastor, teacher the other day make the declaration. He says this, and this is almost verbatim. Almost every prayer meeting is useless And he just makes this statement like every, every every prayer meeting is useless. And what does he do? And then he then he caricatures it. And he says, because people get together for 20, 22 minutes, he says, it's a town hall meeting. Well, we're sharing things like surgeries and sicknesses. It's like, what what does it mean to you to bear one another's burdens? And then he caricatures it by saying, well, if I had a bad knee and I needed a knee surgery, I'd much rather you pay pray for my children who are going to hell than my knee. It's like, are those really the only two options? Are those really the only two options? And he says, everybody's talking about this person is sick and that person is It's like, I get it. But then he makes this universal declaration that such prayer meetings are useless, to which I say, who appointed you to say that? Who appointed you to say that? And this is getting wearying, brothers and sisters, of the influence of people who aren't the pastors of people getting their ear tugged by people who have channels or who are celebrities, reformed or non-reformed. And then they come into the next prayer meeting saying this is just a waste of time. This is just a waste of time. And who the heck are you to declare that most most prayer meetings are useless? And who are you to caricature as if this is the only thing that happens? So I'm I'm not talking just about the Joel Osteens of the world. I'm talking about in reformed culture. Where men's books or women's books and people are followed. And they are, I think, disproportionately influential influential on ordinary Christians of ordinary churches. When we find these kind of bold, eloquent, powerful influencers who are listened to with more authority than local church pastors, there's a problem. Some claim to have visions, some claim greater knowledge of the Bible, while others claim essentially to have more of a direct connection with God. Like God spoke to me and told me that all of these prayer meetings are useless. Well, why don't you just not go to them then and let them bear one another's burdens? I question what seems to me an imbalanced influence that they have on members of ordinary churches. Now, I believe one of the reasons for this unhealthy influence is Christians who spend more time on YouTube, podcasts, and reading books explaining Scripture than they do praying, reading the Word for themselves, and serving in their local church. They begin to be inordinately shaped by the outside voices more than by the living voice of God by his Word, His spirit, and the body of Christ of which they are a part now I say this and y'all who know me know I love books I enjoy books I love reading books and I watch youtube videos been watching them this week and I listen to podcasts, but we need to do so in thoughtful and self regulating ways, being particularly aware of how they are in- affecting our Attitudes are moods, particularly toward God's people with whom we are in community. And this is vital for our healthy spiritual growth. It is my judgment that those who constantly bathe themselves in an angry pundit culture, accustomed to, to, to name calling, degrading speech about others, even when it's accompanied by, well, I'm just being courageous or I'm just being faithful. Or I, this is just masculine Christianity because we, we need to pull ourselves up and get out there and fight this fight. that It's not healthy for the heart of God's people. I don't think it's a reflection of Christ nor of Paul, the gentle warrior. I entreat you. I beg you. I appeal to you by the gentle and meekness of Christ. So, a couple of questions then. Are we displaying the gentleness and meekness of Christ as our default disposition with others? Others who hurt us. Others who disagree with us. Are we displaying the gentleness and meekness of Christ? Second, are we engaged with the proper weapons of prayer? Faith, believing what God has said. Righteousness, doing the right thing, living the right way. And the gospel of peace? Yes, we are warriors, but by Paul's example, we are to be gentle warriors, not trusting in the weapons of the flesh, of controversy, or of technology, but in those that have divine power for casting down strongholds. And finally, are we taking our thoughts captive in what we watch, read, and listen to in obedience to Christ, and do they result in reflecting his heart? If if we are consumers of Christian stuff. Including podcast books. And, and, and it's not shaping us into the likeness of the gentleness and meekness of Christ. Then something has gone wrong somewhere. He deals with us in such gracious ways. So that we can be gracious. He is Been rich toward us so we can be rich toward others. We are called to stand on the truth courageously and unflinchingly. Humility is not weakness. Humility. Fused with courage is strength. This is the Lord's battle. not ours, ultimately. So may the Lord help us to be humble warriors as we take every thought captive. Let's pray. So Lord, we pray your blessings on this word to make us more like Christ who comes as king is coming again and heads will roll and he will bathe his garments in the blood of his enemies. That when the city of man is overthrown, there will be those who will cry out to the rocks and to the mountains, cover us up and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But we are grateful that we are in this period of appeal and entreaty. And the first siege engine hasn't been bumped up against the wall. And he stands outside the city of Mansoul and appeals for surrender. He does not take delight in the death of the wicked. So we have this period of appealing. And I pray even this morning for those who are outside of Christ. Who even in seeing this picture of who Jesus is. That they would know that the time is coming when Their city, their plans, their hopes, their dreams will all be dashed and overthrown. And they too will cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But his appeal now is open the door, open the gates. Come in submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords while there is an age of grace. We pray. Lord, as a church, that you would help us to benefit from the many, many technologies and the blessings that we have and books, immeasurable amount of books and access to so much information and so much um, understanding and and things through the internet and and podcasts. Lord, we 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 are embarrassed by the riches of these things, but Lord, may they not draw us away from the scripture. May we not confuse the reading of Scripture with hearing somebody talk about Scripture. It's just not the same thing. Lord, bathe our souls in your word. Bathe our souls in prayer and communion with you. And help us to be shaped by the gentle and meek Jesus. We pray this in his name.